we said that the city of Ephesus was the most important city in Asia in the first century. A close second was a city called Smyrna, and they're the second letter that we come to in Revelation chapter 2. We're we're reading uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is giving commentary to seven specific churches in the region. As a matter of fact, we have a a new map this week, uh, Ephesus and then Smyrna uh, to the left and up. They're the second group that gets addressed. And Jesus is giving uh, essentially good news, bad news to the churches. He's saying, here are the things you're doing really, really well, and you need to keep doing these things. And then he's also saying, here's some things you really need to get better at. Here's things you need to work at. And last week we saw with the church at Ephesus, he was very direct in saying, if this doesn't get better, then I'm done with you. Like I'm not going to be a part of a church that's not doing this particular thing Uh, And we talked about that in Ephesus. Now, the interesting thing about Smyrna, the second letter, is while Jesus commends them for some things, he says, here's what you're doing really, really well. Unlike most of the letters, Jesus doesn't give them any bad news at all. He doesn't have any problem with any of the things that are happening in the church at Smyrna. Let's read the whole thing, and then we'll talk about it. Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Which is, there's some troubling things in the letter, but the overall attitude of the letter is, is incredible. That God would say, you are doing Great, you are doing everything right. You get a hundred on the test, not just a passing grade. You get a hundred, you're doing everything right. I'm proud of you. And so the question then has to be well, what do you have to do to get a perfect score with Jesus? What do you have to do to get nothing but good news from Jesus? And the answer apparently is you have to suffer. There are two churches out of the seven who get no bad news from Jesus, and both of them are suffering churches. Now, I'm not real sure how teachers or preachers who teach that we're all supposed to be healthy all the time, or we're supposed to be wealthy all the time, or we're supposed to have no problems in our life, or we're supposed to pray and all our problems go away. I'm not sure how they deal with that reality, but the way we deal with that reality is to say, God does not intend for our lives to be free from suffering. I mean, it's not a joyous principle. It's not something we get real excited about. But it's the truth. That God does not intend for our lives to be free from suffering. That we will walk through trials sometimes. We will walk through challenges. We live in a broken, fallen world 
And sometimes the brokenness of this world enters into, intersects with, crashes into our lives. And we're left with really hard circumstances. If you objectively read the Bible, you'll find this to be true all throughout the Bible. If you objectively read the complete story of pretty much any character in the Bible, you will find that, yes, there are some things that go really well and God is with them. But all of them walk through difficult times. All of them suffer. All of them walk through challenges, some to a much greater degree than others. So it's simply not true that it's God's intent for us to get from birth to death free of all problems, or that God is somehow going to miraculously take away all of our struggles because the people, the churches that He holds the highest are those that suffered the most. Now, another truth, a bit of good news to this is if, if you're that person that's suffering, if, if you're hurting, if you're facing a trial or a challenge or an obstacle or some sort of great struggle, the good news from this church is you're in the perfect position for God to give you His highest commendation. If you're carrying a weight in your life, If you're facing great obstacles, you are perfectly positioned for God to say about your life, you're doing great. You're being faithful. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm with you. I'm never going to forsake you. You are in a perfect position to hear from God. You're getting 100 on the test right now. You are acing the test right now because it is in our suffering that God molds and shapes us, that He forms our character. It is often in our suffering that He makes us more like Jesus, and it is often through our suffering that He accomplishes His greatest glory, not just for this life, but for eternity. So then we have to ask the question, what specifically was causing the suffering of the people in Smyrna? And for that, We have to do a little bit of history work, and I know history is not everybody's favorite subject, so if it's not your favorite subject, ask the person sitting next to you to keep you awake for like the next 10 or 15 minutes, or go get another cup of coffee and get a little more caffeine so we can walk through some history together. Smyrna was similar to Ephesus, if you were here last week, uh, it's similar to Ephesus in some ways, in that it was a central city, a vital, important city. Um, It it was a harbor city, again, just like Ephesus. Its harbor, though, was better protected. It was safer. So it was safer for ships to get in and out of Smyrna. So there was a huge amount of economic trade that went through Smyrna. As a matter of fact, they had a, a massive marketplace in Smyrna. Smyrna was a planned city. At least the second Smyrna was. It existed for a couple hundred years. It got destroyed. So when they rebuilt it, they thought, well, let's design it and lay it out the way we want. Let's make it, everything make sense. Let's plan it out. And, and so it was this beautiful planned city in Asia. It, it was sometimes referred to as the ornament of Asia because it was just so beautiful. It, it sat not only on the harbor, it sat between the sea And the mountains. So I know some of us are mountain people and some of us are beach people and maybe some of us are either or people. 
Whoever you were, you would love living in Smyrna. Because you could run to the mountains for a day or two. You could be at the beach with, in, in just a little bit of time. It's perfectly located where everybody could love living in Smyrna. It, it, like Ephesus, it had its own version of Olympic Games. So they had competitions on a regular basis there in Smyrna. Huge amphitheater, again, much like Ephesus. Lots of entertainment, lots of cultural arts in Smyrna. It also had the influence of Greek and Roman mythology. So there were temples to Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite and the, the cult prostitution and immorality that went along with uh, Greek and Roman temples. All of that was a part of the city. Smyrna, maybe more than any other city, they were fiercely loyal to Rome. They were supportive of their government. They were 100% behind the emperor, the governor, the leaders, and they had been for a really long time. Uh, there's one story where the people of Smyrna got news during a, during a war that the Roman soldiers were hungry and cold, and so they grabbed all of their own clothes and sent it to the soldiers. They were just fiercely loyal to Rome, and, and in some ways, it's this loyalty to Rome that separated them from the Christian believers, that, that caused them to despise and marginalize the believers of that city, uh, fueling the flame, figuratively, figuratively and literally. AD 64, some of you remember this, Nero is ruling and Rome burns. And the rumor starts to circulate that Nero actually started the fire, because he was crazy, um, and Nero needed a scapegoat, and guess who became the scapegoat? The Christians. He began to say, no, I didn't do it, they did it. And so the tide just slowly and continually turns more hostile and more antagonistic towards the believers of Christ. So much so that in verse 9... Jesus said, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And, and afflictions in this sense means the crushing weight of your life. I know that you are surrounded by persecution. I know that the whole culture, the government, the people that you live with, it's crushing in around you and your poverty, he says. And, and, and poverty in this sense doesn't mean you were just barely getting by. It doesn't mean you didn't have anything extra. Poverty in this sense means they didn't have anything at all. The Christian believers were not only on the receiving end of hostility from the culture that they lived in, but they were at the lowest end of the socioeconomic spectrum. They had nothing. And because they were marginalized and because they were despised in many ways, people began to make up stories about the Christians, either through exaggeration or misunderstanding or just trying to get more people to dislike, hate their Christian community. For, for example, the believers engaged in a ceremony where they claim to eat the flesh and drink the blood of their Messiah. Now, we know it's communion. We know they weren't literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood, but that's the story that started to circulate. 
That's a group of cannibals, and they're eating people and drinking their blood. These sort of exaggerations began to swirl around the Christians. They had a gathering, a regular gathering called a love feast, which was basically they got together with other believers and they all shared a meal together and and they found out how each other was doing. They just kind of hung out, but they were intentional about doing this on a regular basis. And because of that, the rumor became that they were engaging in some sort of illicit sexual cult, which is interesting because the rest of Rome really engaged in illicit sexual cults, but they pointed at the Christians to try to make people dislike them even more. Here's the problem for all of us. Once you decide that someone is the enemy, you'll likely believe anything negative about them that you hear. And that was kind of the groundswell, and that goes both ways. I understand that goes both ways, but sort of what added to the groundswell is they were already marginalized, They were already disliked, and so when these stories start swirling, everybody just believes them, and the anger towards the believers just steadily increased. Uh, They were accused of being godless. Imagine that. They were accused of being godless because they would not worship the mythological gods. They, They would not go to worship at the temple of Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite. They, they would not participate in a lot of the cultural arts because all of the cultural arts at the time were either directed towards mythological gods or they were filled with immorality and, and vile sexual practices. And so they stayed away from the cultural arts of the time. And you have to remember Rome was not just trying to establish a government, right? It wasn't political and military solely. Yes, they were trying to take over the world. But that wasn't the end game. The end game was to completely change the culture. We called it Hellenization, the expansion of Greek culture. And so as they took over territories, they wanted everybody in that territory to participate in the same things. You all have to be alike. You all have to agree with the same things. You all have to have the same perspective. You all have to enjoy the same forms of entertainment. You all have to worship the same mythological God. So Rome was determining not just politics and military. They were determining groupthink and opinions, and perspectives, and how you entertained yourself, and what you thought was right, and what you thought was wrong, and they demanded full allegiance. And this was part of the sticking point for believers, especially when it came to politics and earthly rulers. You were expected to see the Roman leader, Caesar, the governor, as Lord. He was to be above everything else, and you were to freely and often proclaim that Caesar is your Lord. And the believers said, no, we already have a Lord. We already have a king. We obey the law. We will live under the authority of the political and military rulers, but we won't pledge allegiance as our king and our Lord to an earthly ruler because we have 
a heavenly ruler. For, for all of these reasons, Christians found themselves in the first and second centuries in Smyrna and in Rome, marginalized and attacked. It, it's why Jesus says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, I know people are making up stories about you. I know that people are claiming that you view things one way when you don't. I know that people are exaggerating about you. I know that people are misrepresenting you. And this continues. In the first century, under Nero, the persecution and torture was vile and unrelenting. Historians tell us that Nero would dress Christians in... uh, the skin of wild animals, and then he would turn other animals loose on them until they were killed. Some of them were crucified as a way to mock their belief in Jesus. Some of them, uh, Tacitus, the historian, says that they were set on fire at the end of the day to provide lights for the streets. Historians record this happening in the first century under Nero. And people who are aware of this happening, people that this isn't a history lesson for in the first century, people who knew others who had experienced this treatment receive a letter one day and it reads, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, by the time John writes these words down, and by the time they make it to Smyrna, Nero is no longer the ruler. Others have stepped in as the governor of Rome. And as leadership changed, the way that Roman leaders handled Christians and persecution varied. In the second century, the approach became, for lack of a better phrase, don't ask, don't tell. In other words, we're not going to go around dragging Christians out of everywhere, but if somebody accuses you of being a follower of Jesus, then you're going to have to come before the courts and you're going to be given the choice to recant your faith or else we're going to punish you. 155 A.D. In Smyrna. The bishop at this time, the church leader in Smyrna in 155, is a gentleman named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp is, tradition tells us, was a disciple of John who writes Revelation. He's one of John's disciples. He has become the leader of the church in this part of the world, and Christians are systematically being put on trial because everyone's accusing. Everyone's accusing. Groups of them have been brought in. Among one of the groups was a gentleman by the name of Germanicus. He was an older, faithful believer, follower of Jesus. When the Romans would arrest older people, they would try to appeal to their weakness, to their age. They would say, you do not want to go through this. You you are not strong enough. You won't survive this. You... You should recant your faith and go back home to your family. 
When they gave Germanicus this opportunity, his response was, I have no desire to continue living in a world where the injustices I have just witnessed take place. And then the history writers say that he called the animals to himself and they killed him. His courage in this moment of persecution, his courage caused the crowd to get angrier. That he faced his death at at such peace and with such courage, they became outraged. And, And then they all began to shout and demand the arrest of the bishop, Polycarp. Initially, Polycarp moved from house to house trying to avoid being arrested until he finally got to a point where he He thought, I think this is what Jesus wants for me. I'm not going to run. I think Jesus wants me to face this. And so sure enough, they arrest him. They bring him in. Same thing. Appeal to his age. Try to intimidate him to get him to change his mind. And Polycarp's response is, For 86 years, I have served him. I've served Jesus. And he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? They bound him, tied him to a stake, set it on fire. And part of his final prayer was, Lord, sovereign, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And he gave up his life. For the cause of Christ. And it's this city, this church, these people that Jesus said, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Fifty years before Polycarp gives up his life, Jesus said, be faithful, even to the point of death. Be faithful. Some of you are going to be tested. Some of you are going to be punished. And within half a century, this city had seen it. They had experienced it. Again, this was not theory. This is not legend. This is what actually happened to Christian believers in the first and second century. Because they would not deny their faith. So why do we talk about that? Why why do we have a history lesson? Because because it reminds us in the history of our faith, in the backstory of our faith, upstream from where we sit in 2019, right? 1900 years, 2000 years upstream from us, were men and women who believed so completely in God, who counted it joy to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, to suffer for Jesus, that they gave their very bodies to be punished, to be tortured, to be burned, to be crucified. 
the backdrop of what we did today is littered with men and women who gave everything for the name of Jesus. When we sang, let's raise a hallelujah. When we sang, what a beautiful name Jesus is. The backstory of us getting to sing that song are men and women who gave everything for the cause of Christ. I mean, you, you woke up this morning and decided to come to church. Decided this was a good day. It wasn't too cold. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too rainy. It wasn't too sunshiny, so we would go to the lake. It, it, this just happened to be that day. Like in the backstory of us weighing, I'm going to go to church or I'm not going to go to church. In the backstory, our, our men and women who believed in Jesus so much, they gave their whole lives for him. Like as, as we debate in our minds, well, do I have time to serve or not serve? I don't know if I want to teach second grade or not teach second grade. I don't, I don't know if I have time to be in a community group. Like all of those decisions that are really big for us and we're weighing, well, should I? I'm not sure I want to be that involved. In the back story of all of that, are men and women who were dragged into arenas and gave up their life. They are our spiritual mothers and fathers. The faith that we have came through their commitment, came through their faithfulness. We have this because there were men and women who were willing to give their very lives so that this would not be lost. We can read Revelation 2 today, because there were men and women who said, everybody needs to be able to read the Bible in their language. And people like Tyndale were executed for it. This is no small thing what we do. This is no minor moment when we come to lift up the name of Jesus. Because there are people from the past who gave everything for what we did this morning. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know how often you step back from your spirituality, you step back from your faith and ask yourself... How greatly am I invested? Really, how much weight am I putting in my faith? How much does this really matter to me? But there was a time when there were men and women that it mattered everything to. Everything. When, I, when I'm not sure if I should mention that I, I, I have faith or I, I'm a Christian. When, when I'm trying to build up the courage to invite a neighbor to church. In the backdrop of that conversation. Are people who gave their lives for this. 
So we talk about this sometimes. We, we wade through some really heavy, weighty history because we can't forget what's in our story. But we also talk about it because suffering for the cause of Christ is and will continue to be a reality. It's not just Smyrna 2nd AD, 2nd century AD. It's not just Rome 1st and 2nd century. It's, it's now. And none of us had to think about it. But there are places all around the world today where going to worship meant risking your life for people. There are places all around the world that men and women and boys and girls went to a secret destination, an underground church, a hidden place, and they sang songs in their language, and they read parts of this book knowing that someone could bust down that door and drag all of us out at any minute. It happened today. It's happening right now. This is the spiritual legacy that you and I are a part of. And may we never take that lightly. And while we're talking about it, it may not always just be somewhere over there. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't try to manipulate people. But the story of persecution may not always just be China. It may not always just be North Korea, and I've never been there, and I don't know those people. There is a growing hostility where we live, towards faith, towards truth, towards the teaching of God's Word. And, and, and listen, I, I never try to position as, as us versus them. We should not have an us versus them mentality. We should not be hostile towards people who believe differently than we do. But let's be honest, if you're older than, I don't know, maybe 35 or 40, and, and you've honestly looked at our culture, there's been this seismic shift in the opinion of people who follow Jesus in the last 30 or 40 years. There's been this seismic shift in the opinion of whether we're a good thing for our country or not. Again, I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions. I, I, I'm not trying to make it us versus them. I'm trying to tell you what I see and what I think, if you're honest, you see. There's exaggeration and there's categorization. Oh, you're one of those people. And, and often, it is around things that people in general have believed for most of the past 2,000 years. That people believe there was a God. That many of those people believe His Son is Jesus. Many of those people believe that what the Bible teaches is true. And we should live our lives according to what the Bible says. And that used to be looked at as a positive thing for our culture. A positive thing for our 
community, at least to some degree. And there has been within the last 30 or 40 years this huge shift away from that to where now much of what we would say we believe is seen as hostile. I don't know the future. I'm not trying to predict the future. I'm not a prophet in that sense. I'm saying that we probably shouldn't read this warning just as, oh, well, that was back then. Because there very likely could come a day when you and I or our children or our grandchildren are asked to defend their faith against hostile people. Now, John said, Jesus said, John wrote it down, it's going to last 10 days. Now, he didn't literally mean 10 days. That would be nice. John meant this persecution that you're going to face is going to be short-lived. It's not going to go on forever. It's not going to last forever and forever and friend, there's a window that is going to come and you're going to be called in the name of Christ to stand strong and courageously and compassionately toward those who don't understand. Jesus said at the beginning, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life. What a reassurance it is for Jesus at the beginning to say, I see what you're going through, but there's an end coming. I'm the first and the last. This isn't all of the story. There's a bigger story that's happening. You're a part of this story, and your life, and your suffering, and your persecution is going to magnify this story. But the story doesn't end there. Because Jesus said, I died and I rose again. Whatever you walk through is going to be redeemed It's going to be used to glorify God. But we stand in the shadow of people who faced the darkest of moments and loved Jesus anyway. The writer of Hebrews says there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And they are our spiritual mothers and fathers. And as we Live out our faith in this coming week, in this coming month, from day to day. We are the heirs of this faith. May we live it out in boldness and courage and love and compassion. May we be worthy of the faith that these men and women have delivered to us. Let's pray. God, thank you that sometimes your word shocks us with reality. Sometimes your word presses against us in hard ways, in ways that we don't want to see and look at. But thousands of years ago, and today thousands of miles away, 
There are men and women who name the name of Jesus not because it's easy, not because it's comfortable, not because it just makes them feel good, not because that's what all their friends do, not because it's supported by the culture around them. They name the name of Jesus because they love Him even if it means giving their life. We are the heirs to such a faith. We are the descendants of men and women who boldly named the name of Jesus in the face of the greatest torture and punishment and death. And may we measure our spirituality by their lives. May we make spiritual decisions in light of the fact that Jesus is worth everything. I pray it in His name. Amen.